Hey. So um, I walked in, and the first thing Michael said to me was, um, I am so impressed and so glad that you didn't dress up tonight. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, actually, I did. <laughs> I, uh, I put pants on and everything. So um, let me get this thing, this thing all situated here. Um, can I pray for us? Can I pray for this, uh, this sermon tonight? Our Father, Father, I, w- I want your name to be hallowed tonight. I want your name to be uh, glorified. Um, I ask that your kingdom would come more fully uh, among us, that you would um, bring it more fully uh, starting in, in my heart. And, uh, and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here. And uh, would you bring your kingdom more fully in this, uh, in this church? And then would you bring your kingdom more fully in this community and in this city, in this region, in this world? Um, we ask that your will would be done uh, just like it's done in heaven. And, um, Father, we are hungry. Um, We are spiritually hungry, and some of us are physically hungry. And so we just ask that you would provide what we need. Would you fill us up? And Father, we are um, often uh, in need of forgiveness, and so we look to you for it. And we understand that um, if we're going to ask you to forgive us, we need to be willing to forgive um, those who, uh, who have wronged us. And we're often tempted. Uh, we're tempted to uh, want to glorify our names over you. And we're tempted in many other ways. Uh, would you deliver us from our temptation? And would you deliver us from, from evil, the evil that's in this world, the evil that's in us? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So tonight, uh, we're beginning a series on the Lord's Prayer, and I'm excited, uh, I'm excited about that, because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking uh, each of the different phrases of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I'm excited for two reasons, and, and one of the reasons is because I really suck at prayer. I suck at prayer, and I'm excited about Jesus uh, teaching me to do it better. And the other reason I'm excited um, is because while I was getting ready to share this message, I learned something about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I learned that it is an eminently practical prayer. In about ten lines, Jesus teaches us uh, who God is and who we are and what the meaning of life is and what the future holds. And not only that, um, but in a jacked-up world like ours, uh, full of oppression and hunger and um, broken relationships and evil, This prayer cries out for justice and bread and forgiveness and deliverance. The rubber meets the road in this prayer. And so I'm excited um, to check it out over the next few weeks. And uh, I'm excited to get to crack open the first line tonight. Um, So prayer. A prayer is meant to deepen our relationship with God. 
right? It is meant to help us experience God more fully in our lives. Um, In prayer, we connect with the most important person that we can know. So it should be the most important thing that we can do, right? But the problem is um, our prayers, like, often go off track. Uh, My prayers often go off track. Um, They are often empty ritual. You know, the whole, like, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, let's eat, you know? Um, They're an afterthought, or or they get completely forgotten. Um, Another way they go off track is uh, they become sources of guilt and shame. We feel like we're not measuring up to some standard of praying. Um, Another way they go off track is uh, our prayers can become sources of pride and hypocrisy. We use prayer to, um, to pretend that we're something that we're not. I'm just describing myself. I don't know if, if you guys are, uh, are there with me, but um, those are some of the ways that prayers go, go, go off track. Prayer is meant to be a blessing, um, but it's a challenge, right? And it goes off track. And so my question is, is why? Why does that happen? Um, and I think that the reason is because prayer is just like any other relationship, right? In any relationship, what you believe shapes your experience, what you believe shapes your experience. And what I mean is, like, if you believe the other person is angry with you, that affects how you approach the relationship, right? So your belief shapes your experience. If you believe that the other person is ignoring you, that shapes um, your experience by it affects how you approach the relationship. Your, your belief shapes your experience. If you believe the other person is, is really lucky to have you in their lives, right, that... Um, that affects how you approach the relationship and your belief shapes your experience. But what if we are mistaken about the beliefs? What if we're mistaken about the beliefs? The whole thing goes off track because if you have a wrong belief, it leads to a wrong relationship. A wrong belief, it leads to a wrong relationship. And it's uh, it's the same with God in prayer. Right? Prayer is meant to deepen our relationship with God. But if we're mistaken about our belief, our beliefs in God or in ourself, it can throw the whole thing off. And I think that's exactly what happens when our prayers become um, meaningless ritual or, or sources of guilt or sources of pride. And this is exactly what Jesus deals with in our passage tonight. Um, he knows that what we believe shapes our relationships. And he wants us to have a right belief so we can have a right relationship with God. He wants us to have a right belief so we can have a right relationship with God. So, so when it comes to teaching us to, prayer, to pray, <clears throat> the very first thing he does in the very first line is he, he shows us who God is and who we are. So let's take a look at the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's, in, it's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. You can find it on... Um, page 6 of your bulletin. So, um, listen up. This is God's word. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. So Jesus begins teaching us how to pray by telling us how to address God. And out of all the options, this is what he chooses. Um, He doesn't teach us to say, uh, dear God. He doesn't teach us to say, um, O Lord Almighty. 
He doesn't teach us to say, you know, sovereign, everlasting creator of heaven and earth, blessed be your name forever. Like, he doesn't say that. He teaches us to address God as Father. This is significant. Because for Jesus' original audience, first century Jews living in Palestine, calling God Father would have brought to mind something really special. It would have brought to mind one of the defining moments in the history of the Jewish people. Because the very first time that God ever called his people sons happened in the Exodus, which was an event so significant that it has been remembered and celebrated by faithful Jews every year for 3,500 years. And the story of the Exodus is that the the people, of, <clears throat> the people of Israel, excuse me, the people of Israel, um, the Jews, had become slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And they were in bondage and oppressed for 400 years. But then in Exodus chapter 2, it says that God heard their groaning. He saw and he knew. And he tells Pharaoh, hear what I say. Israel is my son. Let him go. And so the very first time that God presents himself as father in history, it's as a father coming to the rescue of his enslaved son. Well, the Exodus story goes on. Pharaoh resists, but God the father insists. Right? And God the father does battle with Pharaoh. And God the father defeats Pharaoh. And God the Father brings his son, Israel, out of slavery. And now here we are in Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus is teaching us to pray with a right belief about God so that we can have a right relationship with God. And he invites us to take words into our mouths that remind us of this particular story. This story of God the Father calling slaves to be sons. And the reason he does this <clears throat> is because the Exodus story shows us what Jesus wants us to experience when we call God Father. Right here in the very first line of this prayer, Jesus is proclaiming to us the Exodus message You are slaves called to be sons. And so I have three points that I want to make tonight if you're, <clears throat> if you're taking notes. Point number one, we are slaves called to be sons. We're slaves called to be sons. Point number two, we are slaves called to be sons. Point number three, because I really want you to get point number three, is we are slaves called to be sons. All right, so let's take a look at point number one. Our Father in heaven. Jesus is calling to our minds a story about slavery. It's a story about slavery. And to be a slave means to be in bondage to something, to be under its power, and to be unable to escape. So does this apply to us? Are we in bondage? Are we slaves? Well, to answer that question, I want to look at um, the context of Matthew 6, because I think Jesus shows us two examples of what slavery can look like. 
And so we'll take a look at those examples and we'll see if we see anything that kind of looks familiar, anything that looks like us. And it's in verses 5 and 7 <clears throat> that he shows us two slaves. It's the hypocrite and the Gentile. And so you can find it's printed in your bulletin on page 6, I think. In verse 5, he says, The hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And in verse 7, he says, When the Gentiles pray, they heap up empty phrases, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So it's two slaves. Two slaves. The hypocrite and the Gentile. And I would, um, I would posit that both are seeking the same thing. They're both seeking a sense of assurance and self-worth. Both the hypocrite and the Gentile are seeking a sense of assurance and self-worth. They're looking for it in different places, but they're, they're both seeking a sense of assurance and self-worth. On one hand, the hypocrite is trying to get it by manipulating um, the approval of others. And on the other hand, the Gentile is trying to get it by manipulating the approval of God. The hypocrite would say, I need status and respect and reputation and everything that comes with that or else. And the Gentile would say, I need to say the right words. I need to do the right things. I need to measure up to the standard or else. In order to have a sense of self-worth and assurance, the hypocrite is willing to pretend That he is something that he's not. He's willing to pretend that he's better than he actually is. And to get that sense of self-worth and assurance, the Gentile is willing to get on a treadmill and to try to keep up with a standard. So, focused on status, respect, reputation, the approval of others. Focused on performance, achievement, Keeping up with a standard, earning God's approval. I mean, does any of this resonate with anybody other than me? Um, where does your sense of self-worth come from? Where does your sense of assurance come from? Another way to ask it <clears throat> is, what are you afraid of? What threatens your sense of assurance, your sense of self-worth? Are you afraid of being exposed for who you really are? Are you afraid of of, uh, losing the respect of certain people? Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid that you're not quite measuring up? Or are you afraid that you messed up so bad that God is not going to listen to you anymore? What else are you afraid of? Are you afraid of... um, Getting old, being poor, getting sick, death. You know what the defining characteristic of slavery is? It's fear. It's fear. And this goes for Christians and non-Christians. If we are living in fear, I think Jesus would say, you're in bondage and you need to be set free. Now, um, unfortunately, I have a a personal example of this from just this last week. Um, 
this last week was terrible. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Barbara knows. She came over to my house, and I was like, ah! Um, so Stephen had asked me to preach, and I foolishly agreed. And I had put in, um, I'd put in hours and hours of work, y'all, and by late Wednesday night, I still didn't even have an outline of what I thought I might say. And, um, and I started to panic. Like, I got really afraid. I was gripped with fear. I was afraid of, um, of failure. I was afraid of looking stupid in front of y'all. I still am. <laughs> um, I was afraid of not measuring up to, um, you know, a standard of sermon giving that I have in my mind. I was afraid that God was ignoring me. And, um, and I can kind of laugh about it now, but, like, at the time, it, it wasn't funny. Like, I was afraid. I couldn't sleep. And um, in the middle of it, I was struck by the fact that, man, I'm a slave to these fears. They have me in bondage, and I can't escape. See, the truth is, um, <clears throat> as long as I have respect and approval and success and security, like I'm fine, I'm golden. But as soon as those sources of, of, of assurance and self-worth are threatened, and I'm gripped by fear, and my slavery is exposed... So what about y'all? Like, where does your sense of self-worth come from? And what happens when it gets threatened? Our Father. Jesus is calling to our minds a story about slavery. Are we slaves? In Exodus chapter 2, it says... During those many days of slavery, the people of Israel groaned and they cried out for help. And that cry is what what brings us to point number two. Point number two, we are slaves called to be sons. So I want to do a little experiment. Um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And uh, it's one of those experiments. And I'm, I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. And I want you uh, to pay attention to the strongest image that pops into your mind. Okay, so I'm going to make a statement, and I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to pay attention to the strongest image that pops into your mind. <clears throat> so everybody close your eyes. God is thinking of you. What is the look on his face? God is thinking of you. What is the look on his face? All right. So there was a pastor named A.W. Tozer, and he said this, and I think he was right on. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what came into your mind? Jesus invites us to call God Father. What comes into our mind when we think about that? Here's what I think happens. 
We hear that word father and we automatically interpret what that means based on our experience of fathers. And some of us have great fathers, but some of us have lousy fathers. And uh, most of our fathers are a mix of good and bad. But some of us have never known our fathers. Whatever your situation, when Jesus shows up and invites you to call God Father, every single one of us already has an image of what that means. And that image is what automatically comes into our mind when we think of God as Father. But the problem is that um, your image of fatherhood, no matter how good it might be, it is um, flawed and incomplete when you apply it to God. Your image of fatherhood is flawed and incomplete when you apply it to God. And if you rely on that, you're going to end up with, um, with false beliefs about God. Your image of fatherhood will lead you to false beliefs about God. The solution is to let God's image of fatherhood replace yours. Let God's image of fatherhood replace yours because God has a perfect image of fatherhood. And in order to be his son or his daughter, we need to let his image of fatherhood be what comes into our mind. I mean, what I'm saying is we need to have a right belief about God in order to have a right relationship with God. All right, so how do we do that? It's a good idea, but how do we do it? So if, if, um, if God had just like parted the clouds, you know, sort of opened the, the window of heaven and sort of stuck his head out and said, hey, y'all, I'm your father. Peace. You know, and like closed the window and gone back into heaven and left us to, um, you know, interpret what image he was trying to convey. I mean, those of us with great fathers would be like stoked. And those of us with crummy fathers would be bummed. And those of us with no fathers would be like, WTF, what the father, right? I don't even know what that means. What? But that's not what God does, right? That's not, what, that's not what God does. God tells us he's our father, yes. But then he shows us what that looks like. He shows us <clears throat> what that looks like so that we can let his perfect image of fatherhood replace our broken image of fatherhood. He shows us what it looks like so we can let his perfect image of fatherhood heal our broken image of fatherhood. And we can see God's perfect image of fatherhood right in the Exodus story. Check it out. The people of Israel groan because of their slavery. And they cry out for help. And it says, God heard, and God saw, and God knew. This is your father. He hears your voice. He sees your situation. He knows what you're going through. He sees your suffering, and he is moved with compassion. This is your father. In your mind, do you have an image of a father who doesn't listen, 
who doesn't notice, who doesn't understand, who doesn't care. Let the image of God's perfect fatherhood come in. And it says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his promise. He remembered his promise. This is your father. He makes promises to you. He promises to love you, to protect you, to provide for you, to guide you, to bless you, and to never leave you or forsake you. And he always remembers his promise, and he never, ever fails to keep it. This is your father. In your mind, do you have a father who forgets or breaks promises? Let the image of God's perfect fatherhood come in. And then God claims the people of Israel. He tells Pharaoh, Israel is my son. This is your father. He claims you as, your, as his own. And once you're his, he is never ashamed to call you his child. He gathers you into his arms and he says, you are mine. And he proclaims to the world, he says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. And this is your father. In your mind, you have an image of a father who ignores or abandons. Let the image of God's perfect fatherhood come in. And then God confronts Pharaoh. He confronts Pharaoh because he will not let his child be enslaved. This is your father. He hears your cry. He keeps his promise. He claims you for his own. And then he confronts the evil that enslaves you face to face. And he says, let my child go. And this is your father. In your mind, you have an image of a father who has never put his skin on the line to confront the evil in your life that threatens to enslave you. Let the image of God's perfect fatherhood come in. Because your father confronts evil. And your father does battle with evil. And your father defeats evil. And your father will bring his children out of slavery. That's your father. And your father is thinking of you. What is the look on his face? If you're going to be a son or a daughter and not a slave, your answer to that question is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about you. Let the image of God's perfect fatherhood come in to your mind and to your heart. And our last point is um, that we are slaves called to be sons. With the first line of this prayer, Jesus invites 
slaves to call God Father. But we need to understand something. None of us is by nature a child of God. None of us is by nature a child of God. The idea that everybody is a child of God, it's not biblical. It's not biblical. Ephesians 2.3 says, we are by nature children of wrath. We're by nature children of wrath. We need to become God's children. And we become God's children not by being born, but by being born again. And what that means is we need to be adopted into God's family. And until that happens, we're still slaves. We're still slaves. In the Exodus story, the slave's freedom cost Pharaoh the life of his son. In our story, our freedom also cost the life of a son. But it was God's son. Jesus willingly came and went to the cross for you and for me. He gave up his freedom and became a slave and died the death of a slave so that we could be free. Ephesians 4, God sent his son Jesus to redeem us from slavery so that we might receive adoption as children of God. God sent his son Jesus to redeem us from slavery so that we might receive adoption as children of God. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and what I mean by that is you haven't put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation, The Bible says you are a slave. You are in bondage and you need to be set free. You are a slave, but you're called to be a son. You're called to be a daughter. God is thinking of you. What is the look on his face? Let the offer of God's perfect fatherhood come into your mind and into your heart tonight. And if you're here tonight and you are a Christian, and what I mean by that is you have put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation, the Bible says that though you are a child of God, it is possible for you to live as though you were still a slave. It's possible for you to live as though you were still a slave. Galatians 4, 8 and 9. Formerly you were slaves. How is it that you are turning back to these miserable things? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? My Christian brothers and sisters, your father is thinking of you. And what is the look on his face? If you are in Christ and you imagine God as anything but overjoyed, (laughs) overjoyed with you, you're falling back into slavery. 
You're falling back into slavery. And, and we are totally prone to do this. We forget that we are God's beloved kids, perfectly safe in his love and in his approval, not because of what we have done, but because of what our elder brother Jesus has done for us and done perfectly. It is finished. We are free. And we need to live our lives out of that assurance. When we forget, man, we go looking for our self-worth in all the wrong places. Like the hypocrite, like the Gentile, like a slave full of fear. But listen to Romans 8. There is no condemnation for God's children. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the Holy Spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. There are two fundamentally different ways to live. And the choice is not between being religious or being irreligious, being moral or being immoral. That's not the choice. We choose to live either as a slave full of fear or as a child of God full of faith. And the child of God lives by faith by deliberately And continuously filling and refilling our mind and our heart with the good news of who we are in Christ. Y'all, we are slaves called to be sons. Let's pray. Father. Father. And let that word explode with meaning. In our minds, would you let it explode with meaning in our hearts? Father, man, I was a slave. I was hopelessly in bondage to sin and to fear. But you called me out of slavery and you adopted me as your son. Thank you. Father, I am prone to forget how certain your love for me is because of Jesus. I doubt your love, um, and I go back to living like a slave, full of fear. Will you help my unbelief? Will you help me trust in your love so I can experience more fully this freedom of being your child? Father, I I know um, that you have set me free. But there are areas of my life where I still feel like a slave. And would you hear me cry? Would you remember your promise? Would you claim me for your own? Will you look this evil in the face and tell it to let me go? Will you come and fight for me? Father, 
Will you come and fight for me? Amen.